Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so we're going to be in Leviticus 26 tonight, and depending on how much of a marathon it is, we may get to 27 too, but we'll see. We'll test our, our endurance. Leviticus, we're closing Leviticus. And it's kind of sad to say goodbye to a book you've been sitting in for so long and that you've been with. But again, for context for tonight, for the entire book of Leviticus, we started out with this, the five sacrifices. Then we went to how to be kosher as a priest and what the holy law meant for the priesthood. And then right in the middle of the book is the law of atonement and then holy law for the people, and then kosher lifestyles for the people, and then the Sabbaths, or the, the, fe the feasts of the Hebrew people. So you've got the sacrifices and the feasts, kosher lifestyle, holy law, atonement right in the middle of the book. And then we get to the end in chapter 26, and what we have is what looks like in the ancient world a treaty that a king would make with a people or a social contract that would get made. And a king would say, if you do all of these things that I've told you to do, then I will bless you in these ways as a king. And that's chapter 26. It's the signed contractual covenant at the end of Leviticus between God and his people. So here's what I want my people to do. Here's what I want my priests to do. There's atonement in the middle. You can be forgiven. And if you do those things, then this is what it looks like. So God's gonna repeat a couple of his expectations. Uh, through Moses, and then he's going to get into what looks like a contract in the ancient world or an official blessing and curses that kind of happens. And this is the model that that looks like. So we'll dig in. Verse 1, you shall not make idols for yourselves, neither carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Remember, we just finished that the law of the Sabbath. And then as he went through the feasts, those were all Sabbath feasts that happened as we went through. So that was the last two chapters. So keep his Sabbath seems to be a big deal. So the conversation that with Moses started all the way back in Exodus 20 and 34 with don't keep idols. So we've literally been a book and a half on this main theme of God that from the Mount Sinai talking to Moses, talking to the Israelites, this is what it looks like. And we're closing up that entire narrative. No idols, keep the Sabbaths. The rest gets summarized in the commandments, which is verse three. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, and I'll stop right there, just because I like this idea, walking, keeping, performing. In, in verse 3, it says, if you walk, that's the Hebrew word yalak. It means literally and figuratively to walk in things. So there's a physical walking that God's expecting, and there's also a spiritual walking with God that, that's expecting. And from the book of Leviticus, we've seen all of that. He's given really practical things that he wants people to do, and he's given spiritual things. To walk in someone's ways is to either move with them, to move away from them, or to move towards them. And I think in God's idea, he wants you to walk in his statutes, which is to walk with him or towards him. To keep his commandments is the word shamar. To keep is to guard something like a soldier would guard a fort. And those commandments then become something we don't necessarily, at some point as believers, we don't argue with God's command. We keep God's command. We're the people that uphold it and carry it forth to the nations. So um, performing is the next part. So if you walk in his statutes, keep his commandments and perform them, the word perform is asa, which is to fashion or to make something that will act with an effect. So if you're building something that has a purpose, so when you perform something, and we're talking about his statutes and commandments, 
you're actually building those things in your life so that they have a purpose in your life. They actually build towards something. And I know that's going really deep into one sentence, but if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them is the conditional statement for all the rest of the blessings that are going to come. So if you're living a life, a spiritual life, and you don't feel like you're being blessed by God, the thing you have to do is go back to Leviticus 26, verse 3, and say, am I walking in his statutes? Am I keeping his commandments? Am I performing them? Am I guarding them? Am I acting and creating them in my life so that they have a purpose? So to craft something, that word perform, is it's implied that that happens over a lifetime, that you make or build something with a specific purpose, and it's a masterwork that you do. So when you craft something, you make mistakes, but the product that you come at at the end of things is something that everyone sees. You don't craft something and hide it. You craft something and put it on display. So if you think of that idea, if you want to work with God, there are these extraordinary supernatural blessings that are going to come into your life if you do these things. And then the flip side, this is the message we don't often get to in church. There are extraordinary supernatural curses that come if you don't. And I'm, we're going to study both because they're both in the Bible. Promises of God, verse four. Then I will give you rain in its season and the land shall, uh, shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. So far, verse four is not very miraculous. Like rain is going to happen. However, if you've ever lived in an area that has drought, you're thankful when the rain comes every year. Um, and God promises that rain will come in its season. Verse five, your threshing or harvesting of crops shall last in time that, until the time of vintage, which is when you pull in like the, when the grapes have sufficiently fermented, right? So your vintage would be when you are putting those into a vat and, and letting the juice turn into wine. And the vintage shall last till the time of sowing and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. So verse five talks about the different kinds of crops that grow in the Middle East and that each one will sustain them through its season and that they'll never go hungry. There won't be seasons where they don't have food. But at the end of verse five, it talks about dwelling in the land safely. Verse six, I'll give peace in the land. You shall lie down and none will make you afraid and I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. Now that's miraculous. If you're gonna have a nation and you never get attacked, um, that's not something that would normally happen in the ancient world. There would always be fear of attack. Verse seven, you will chase your enemies and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall give chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Now that's miraculous because uh, 10,000 people don't run away from a hundred people unless God's on their side. So the one to 20 ratio and then the one to 100 ratio is a miraculous promise, but we're going to see later in the Old Testament, God totally delivers on it. With Gideon, he actually over delivers on this. With Gideon, remember he had 300 people after he sorted out his army of the people that weren't with God and the people that were dedicated and they followed God with all their heart. It came down to 300 people and he beat the, um, the opposing army that had 135,000 people in it. And they used lanterns and those people got scared and they all started bumping into each other. And it was a comical scene until they all started hurting each other and then Gideon just came in and won with 300 people. Jonathan and his armor bearer, that's two people, whipped the Philistines by doing the same kind of thing. They, they thought there was an army attacking them. And so the chaos started to happen and the Philistines were routed. So two beats an army and 300 beats 135,000. So God actually over delivers on his promise in the history of Israel. The promise then of material possession, having enough to eat, being free from your enemies and attacks is not the same thing as what we're hearing in Latin America, South America, and even in America with prosperity gospel. A popular theological fad that's happening right now where if you love the Lord, he'll bless you with a new Corvette and a bigger house and you'll get the best job and you'll get that promotion. If only you love the Lord enough, you'll get all these things. That's not what's being promised here. Safety and food is what's being promised. That's the miraculous blessing of God. You'll have enough to eat and you won't have to worry about people killing you when you go to bed at night. And if you think of the United States, a country that was largely founded on the principles of the Bible, we've enjoyed that for 200 years. Very little fear from war. 
we had a civil war, right? But very little attacks from the outside and very little times when we haven't had food. Um, and we've enjoyed those kinds of things. But this is a promise to Israel, and I should say that too. This is not a promise that translates to the United States of America. Even though people like me like to say that, this is Moses and God talking to the nation of Israel. When they follow God, good things will happen. Verses 4 and 5 are about food. Verses 6 and 7 are about safety. Um, and those two things are the core promises. But then God gets even more in the blessings. And I like this one. Verse 9, for, if you, for I will look favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. So God's going to help the Israelites make lots of babies. And to make lots of babies, you need lots of healthy marriages. You need twins every now and then and triplets. And those are the kinds of things that God sees as a blessing on families when he does that. He will make them multiply. And that will be a confirmation of his covenant with you. To confirm my covenant is only one word. It's the Hebrew word bereth. It's an allegiance or a league with another person, and it's usually used between nations. So God as one nation is making an agreement with Israel, the other nation here. And then verse 10, you shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because you got to make room for the new. So you won't have even eaten all your food before you got to clear out the other piece. So it's kind of a reference to chapter 25 when they have a land Sabbath that they're going to get their food in year six and they're going to be able to eat it all the way through year eight. God's going to make good on that. I will set my tabernacle among you. Again, the promises just get bigger and more amazing. So not only are you going to have food and safety and your population is going to grow quickly, you're also going to get my tabernacle among you and my soul should not abhor you. <laughs> and this is a holy God dealing with an unholy people, right? So he's going to say, even though you make mistakes and you're unholy, I won't hate your guts, which is what abhor means. You can look the word up. It basically means I won't be annoyed with you to the point of hating you, right? So God's not going to be annoyed. And that's the promise. And it's an amazing promise. I'll be patient. And God is, and he keeps that promise throughout the Old Testament. He is very patient with Israel. Verse 12, it even gets better. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. This is an interesting <laughs> sandwich of I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Um, this idea of I'll set my tabernacle there, I'll not abhor you, I'll walk among you, I'll be your God, and you shall be my people are five prepositional phrases, and in the middle of the prepositional phrases is I will walk among you, which is an interesting thing to say. Because God with Moses was a presence or a cloud or a Shekinah glory. Remember the people wanted Moses to be the intermediary because it was just too overwhelming for them. And in the middle of this, God makes a promise to Israel that he will walk among them. And this is a promise that could easily be interpreted as, um, as messianic. That, he will be, that he'll walk among the Israelites and not among other nations. And that'll be the giant end blessing he gives to Israel. Right? I will set, as we've seen that word before, Nathan is to give or to bestow or ascribe something. So he will give his tabernacle among the people and he'll dwell among them. I will walk. Again, that phrase, I don't know if the Hebrews saw that as a literal thing or not. Uh, Moses met and walked and talked to God. It says he talked with him face to face, um, but the people never really had that experience with God. So at some point in the future, God's going to walk among them. That's icing on the cake. If the Israelites do this, that's what obedience to God is worth. If you want God to walk with you, to tabernacle and live with you, um, to not be annoyed by you when you sin, then do what he's asked you to do. Obey him. So all this kind of thing is exactly what we want. Paul um, quotes this verse in 2 Corinthians 6.16. A good one to memorize for Britta. Um, and I like to tell you when verses that we're reading through in the Old Testament get quoted by our New Testament friends. So in 2 Corinthians 6.16, it says, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Remember, we started this chapter with idols. So Paul connects these two ideas. Don't worship idols, worship God. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So he's making an argument that fellowship with other believers to come out and be separate by following God's laws 
even though you don't have to follow the law, when we do, that's something that God's going to use so that he will walk among us and be with us when we do things. And if your body's the temple of God and God says, I'll tabernacle in my, in, among you, you could also read that like Paul did in that the tabernacle is not the actual physical tent of Moses, but it's also the figurative tabernacle of our bodies when God tabernacles literally inside of us. And that wording or the Hebrew there could be interpreted accurately as Paul interprets it, or you could also accurately say, well, there's an actual tent in the middle of Israel, and the words mean the same thing. It just depends on which context you do it in. So when Paul takes that verse and uh, pulls it from the tent context to the temple of a living God in our bodies context, it means the same thing, and it's just as accurate. So... Oh, I got it. I think it's interesting if Israel does everything we've just talked about in Leviticus, they will be a very different nation. And in one other spot where we kind of see this, this idea that God will be among their people, we see evidence of this in 1 Kings 10. And I'm going to read a couple verses, uh, verses 4 through 7, right in the middle of that. Um, so in 1 Kings 10, it says, the Queen of Sheba is coming to visit Solomon. And she'd seen all of Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built. And the meat of his table, he has food, the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up to the house of the Lord. And there was no more spirit in her, in Sheba, the queen of Sheba. And she said to the king, it was a true report that I heard in my own land of the acts of thy wisdom. Howbeit I didn't believe the words until I came here and my eyes have seen it and behold, the half of it wasn't even told to me. The wisdom and the prosperity exceeds, exceeds all the fame which I've heard. The Queen of Sheba comes to Israel and she sees a land that is not beset by enemies. They have plenty of food to eat and they are absolutely and abundantly provided for by God. And because of that, a non-Israelite thinks there must be a God because only a supernatural intervention could have this much prosperity in a country. And that was the impression that Sheba had, and that's exactly what God promised would happen if they did what he's asked them to do. So likewise, when we obey God as much as we can, we become a witness to other people. Not because we're filthy rich, that's not the blessing God talks about, but because God can see that, or people can see that God abides with us. And that joy that's in us is something that they see and they want and they think, why is that person so content and so happy and so joyful? Why is there no strife and war in their life? Why are they not constantly hungry and thirsty for things? Why are they just sated all the time? And like the nation of Israel becomes that model for us, the Christians become the same kind of thing. They're fed, they're safe, they're not fearful all the time, and they're joyful people. And those things added up, that is your witness to other people. That is what draws people into the kingdom. I think that's harder to see the younger you are. The older you are, the more your friends will start to realize life isn't everything they thought it would be. <laughs> and then they look at you and they're like, but Sean seems to be having fun with life and he's been doing it for 40 years. And then they start to ask questions like, why are you not totally upset and discontent and getting all grizzled and nasty in your older age? And you think, because I have the joy of Christ in my heart. And it's, it gets to be easier to witness the older you get too. I am the Lord your God is how we end this section. Jehovah Elohim. It's a refrain that we've seen all, seen all the way through Leviticus. And it is, if God is our God, then our form of worship is to do what he said. It's a statement more than a claim. <laughs> He's not claiming to be the Lord of Israel. He is declaring it in a national contract with them. And they've signed the contract already. It's funny because Israel said, yes, you can be our God at the beginning of, even before, remember they said that at the end of Exodus? So at the beginning of this whole process, they've agreed to this national contract before they saw the terms. And now that they've seen the terms, God is confirming it, I am the Lord your God. And he demands it via the law and he inspires it with the Holy Spirit. So we have those five promises, provision, safety, population growth, abiding with us and walking with us. And those are the five promises of God if you do what he says. One question is, are those five things sufficient? And are they, 
are they what you want out of life? And I honestly think when people aren't walking with God, it's because they would answer negative to that question. No, I don't need God to walk with me. And that's a dangerous place to be, but it's also a legitimate and rational decision. If you want to follow God, then his law comes with the deal. And then he can be the Lord your God. If you don't want to follow God, then he's not your God. You're not necessarily held under account under that same law. So there's a decision to be made, and there is today. I'll keep going. Verse 13. Grant, can you get him to settle at some point? Because he's jingling, and it's really distracting to me. <laughs> jingle, jingle, jingle. I bet you all miss Shadow. <laughs> I bet they can hear the jingling, too. We could. I'm going to wait for him to finish drinking. <laughs> How much water did you give him? <laughs> now he's going to have to go to the bathroom in five minutes. Let's get back to verse 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I've broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. I think it's interesting that um, this idea that God will walk with us is the promise. And when you say there's a choice, either walk with God or don't walk with God, in verse 13, I think God reminds Israel why they're walking with him. Because before they walked with God, they were miserable. They were crying out for help. And he gave the help, and that help comes not with strings attached, but because you're not a slave anymore, you are free, now you can walk upright because you're not being dragged down by your chains. So that's kind of the trade-off that comes there. Jesus does the same thing. After he rises from the dead, you have these wonderful scenes with Jesus where he walks with his disciples and sometimes they know it's Jesus and sometimes they don't. And they're these beautiful images, but in those images, part of it is they're walking together with Jesus, which kind of fulfills this promise, right? So they were, they were talking with each, with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And I just, I love how Jesus does that sometimes, that Jesus is walking with us and we don't even know it. But he comes along and walks alongside them because they're talking about everything that's happened in the resurrection, that the grave is empty and all that stuff is there. And instead of Jesus going, yeah, I know, isn't this great? At first he just says, what are y'all talking about? And he kind of sets them up that way. So God gives them freedom and then he invites his people to walk in those ways using the freedom they have. And it's almost like God delights in doing that with us. Wouldn't it be nice if Leviticus ended right here? And wouldn't this be the perfect spot? I hope you've read ahead a little bit. And I thought it, it would be kind of cool. It doesn't, of course. God spends much more time on the curses than he does on the blessings. <laughs> Largely because God knows the future. And he knows that the, the curses are there. And I'll give you another reason, too, I think. He also spends more time on the curses than the blessings because the curses are going to come in five stages. There's five blessings and there's five stages of curses. And the, the curses, as the blessings get progress, progressively better, ending with, I'll, I'll walk with you, and then Jesus does walk with them, the curses get progressively worse. In mercy, if they listen to the curses when they're not so bad, then they don't get worse. But as a good father in heaven... God will discipline his people. And uh, verse 14 is, if you do not obey me, God is teaching Israel obedience. At some point, they will obey. And because they're in covenant and they're God's country, they're going to glorify God if they follow him because he'll bless them and people say, wow, people who follow God are really blessed. But they're also going to glorify God if they don't follow him because they're going to get so supernaturally cursed. Even non-God-following people will go, Wow, those people are unlucky. They must be God's children because only God could do that to a country. That's only the only way it could happen. So as we read through this, don't think of how cruel God is. Think of how idiotic people are that continue to get these curses and then they keep going that way. 
So if you don't obey me and do not deserve, observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, that's, better, that's the opposite of guarding them, remember? So all this is kind of mirror image. And if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, that's the conditional statement, right? And then in 16, I'll also do this to you. But before we get to the doing this part, Look at how this part, th these verses right here reflect or mirror that kind of ending promise, right? Of I'll walk among you. And if you keep my statutes and you hold them dear. So God wants the heart and the opposite of loving God is of course despising him, right? In verse 15, and your soul actually doesn't like the judgments of God. And what saddens me is we have a lot of this in the church right now. We have Christians that don't really like what God has to say. Or we have one or two things we disagree with God. We love God on all these things, but we don't love God when he says these things. And that's a tough place to be. Because if you are a sinner and God lists all the sins, there will be one point where he says something you don't want to hear. Because all of us have something in our life that God said we need to give up in order to follow him. It is not human nature to follow God. It's human's nature to not follow God. So there's going to be some point, as we've read through Leviticus, where there's something in God's word that you just don't feel quite right with. It could be the money. It could be the pride. It could be the greed. It could be any of the Ten Commandments. At some point, God's going to step on your toes. And he's asking you, do you love me or do you hate me? Do you abhor my judgments, verse 15, so that then you don't do all of his commandments? You just, because you don't like one thing, you ignore God and all the things. And suddenly there's no law in your life and you break covenant. If you want covenant with God, the blessings are amazing. It's worth it. And anyone who's been in covenant with God and followed Christ with their life can say, this is a good way to live life. It's a great way to go through things and do things. The flip side of that, however, is that there, if you say, I want to be in covenant with Jesus, and then you break that covenant, God's going to be glorified because you've named yourself and been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So he's either going to bless your life because you follow his commands, or he will curse you and chase after you, and your life will be miserable. In that sense, once you make the covenant to Christ, you should try to stick through it to the end of your life. Um, and I won't name names, but if you've known people like this, it just gets worse for them. And you start shaking your head going, don't you see that you made a commitment to Jesus Christ when you were young and now you're breaking it and God's trying to call you back into the fold. But there's a point where it is undeniable. It's like supernatural, like everything bad keeps happening to them. And you're thinking, wow, it would have been better for you if you never made the commitment in the first place. But at this point, God keeps trying to call you back through the end of your life. All right, verse 16, I will also do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. This is not a good list of things to start with in stage one, right? So stage one, verses 16 and 17, you're going to panic over nothing, right? I'll, I will have this thing. You shall flee when no one pursues you. You're just in panic mode, and there's not really a problem out there. You're going to have an entire nation of people that are like their chickens with the head cut off or chicken little. The sky is falling, everything's going wrong and they're in panic and they're running around like fools because they think everything's about to go bad and no one's pursuing them. And you have this situation that when God lifts his protection and bahala, terror or panic, there will be a troubling of spirit across the nation. And that's that I will appoint terror over you, belahala. Right? Did I say that? Bahala. I think that's right. <laughs> you will be troubled. And there will be trouble in your life. God's hand brings safety and peace. When he lifts his hands, you get the opposite. Danger and terror. The life to live in panic is not life. And if you know people like this, where everything's always a crisis, 
and they go through their life moving from crisis to crisis to crisis. And as a sober-minded believer, you look at them and go, you're in panic over nothing. It's your own head that creates your own drama. And how do you live like that? It's not peaceful. And you shall flee when no one pursues you. It should be a convicting verse. That terror then also has disease with it, blindness, sorrows, warfare. You're going to be ruled over. So as much freedom as you think you're going to get, you're eventually going to have people that hate you that rule over you. And I think of prisoners. You had your little moments of freedom where you did whatever you wanted to, but the end of that path is that you live in a place where people who really don't like you rule over you. You know, and I think for Israel, it has to do with other nations coming in and attacking them. But we should see this too. That's just stage one. Okay, you ready for stage two? And the reason I say stages is at the beginning of verse 18, it says, and after all of this. So you've experienced all these things. Now comes phase two. If you do not obey me, how merciful. So they could turn it around and obey him in between verses 17 and 18, and we would not have to go to stage two, right? Just realizing your life is chaos and turning back to God, God can bring peace. Just that easy. But if after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain and your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. So a lot of this whole stage two has to do with how hard they're going to work and how little they're going to get for it. And they're going to work harder and harder and harder and they're going to get less and less back. So working hard only really brings fruit when God is in it with you and walking with you. It's like when a child fights their parents, like a spastic child, right? And the parent just says, okay, hold, I'm going to just hold you because you're going to hurt yourself. You're spastic. Right, And I don't know if you've seen kids like this where they're just flailing about and throwing their hands. And you're like, I'm going to just sit here with you until you can chill out because you're in a mode right now. Grant, when he was a baby, used to get like this. And we would just hold him and hug him and he would go, and you could see all the way down to his lungs because he screamed. And we would just be like, chill, dude. It's good. And you'd control your breathing. And he would be like, so mad. And the more he fought, the less he got for it. The less came out of it. And that's kind of what it's like. First you get irrational chaos and disorder, but now you get this thing where you're working so, so hard, seven times harder, and you just don't get anything back for it. It's like fighting against the goads, right? It's just this idea that God mercifully moves from these imagined fears to now things that are getting real, like the, the ground is not producing its produce. Verse 20, the heavens are like iron. They're not raining, right? The earth is like bronze. It's not easy to till. So now you've got real things to worry about. It went from easy in stage one to now things are actually getting harder in stage two. And we get these this kinds of things. Oh, I had the verse in here. Acts 26, 14. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice to me saying in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? So it was, I had done my homework. Um, this is what God asked to Paul. It's the same thing. Paul, you're sure fighting hard right now to get somewhere and you think you're serving me, but you're not serving me. You're against me. You're not going with the Messiah I sent. You're fighting against me. So, Paul, you want to keep doing this? Is this working for you? Are you done yet? Or can you just wait until you cool down and you just start to follow God? So God, like a parent, has the consequences get worse and worse and worse until the kid learns obedience. After all this, we get stage two. Broken power relationships, verse 19, their leadership is going to be horrible. So stage two, that broken power piece, um, I will break the pride of your power. They will have, at this point in Israel's history, they'll have kings and they won't be very good. They'll have judges and they won't be very good. And they'll go through leadership structures in Israel that just fail them and they won't have things to be proud of. They'll have leaders that make mistakes. 
So broken power, hardship in production, everything's undermined when they exert a lot of workforce and all they get back is nothing. Verse 21 is stage three. Then, so we have a transition. Then, if you still walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, notice that these are getting longer. First, it was just not willing to obey. Now it's not willing to obey and you're walking contrary. I'll bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. And I will send wild beasts among you. So in the blessings, there would be no wild beasts. And now the lions come back, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock and make you few in number and your highways shall be desolate. So in stage three, literally speaking, you have wild beasts that will spread throughout the land. If you're not taming and making an orderly country, the wild animals came back. I swore I saw a coyote on the side of the road as we were coming, as we were driving over to church today. Um, if you don't thin the populations, the wilds come back. If you don't harvest the trees and mow the lawn, the weeds will return. Um, so at some point, the nation under bad leadership not producing, now their livestock's going to get hit hard. So these are real things to worry about. They're going to be few in number instead of prosper prospering. See how this mirrors the blessings? Instead of growing as a population, they'll shrink as a population. They'll be few in number. So the spreading of chaos is going to seek to consume them, and the first thing to go will be the kids. The next thing to go will be their property, and then the people will start to shrink, and then their trade relationships with other countries. There'll be nothing to trade, so why would people come there, and therefore their roads will be desolate? There'll be nothing to trade. So you've noticed that each promise gets better uh, of a blessing, and each curse gets worse. And so in verse 4, we had provision. In verse 20, we get not provision. In verse 5, we got safety. In verse 17, we got not safety. In verse 9, we got lots of babies. In verse 22, we got not so many babies. Seven times more. So two seven times in verse 18 and verse 21, and now seven times more. And we have a math moment, if we could. And I think this is a really cool math moment. In Ezra 4, verse 5, it says, For I've laid on you the years of their iniquity. Years of their iniquity is what we're talking about here in, Levit in, in Leviticus. According to the number of days, 390. So you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So he lays on his side for 390 days that of what Israel will suffer. Okay, Follow me on this. Ezekiel's a prophet, and God's told him, I need you to lay on your side, literally lay on the ground, for 390 days. And for each day, that's representing a year of punishment that Israel will get. You with me so far? Okay, let's do more math. Then he tells Israel to flip to the other side because after 390 days, side one has got bed sores, right? So this is not good for the human body. And Ezekiel 5.5, 5, he then completed them and he said, lie again on your right side and then you bear the iniquity of the house of Judah for 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. God makes this very clear, right? one day for each year. So with 390 and 40, we have 430 days of punishment that God's going to do. He's going to promise this. Prophetically, then, there's a day for each year of punishment. They already, at this point with Ezekiel, have been exiled in Babylon for 70 of those years. So 430 minus 70 is... 360. I'm glad Britta's here. So they were in uh, Babylon in Jeremiah 25, 11, uh, 29, verse 10, and Dan 9, verse 2. 70 years was the punishment because 70 times they didn't do the year of Jubilee that we read about in the last chapter. So they didn't do God's commandments. They were punished one year for each year they skipped Jubilee. That was 70 years, right? So now we're with Ezekiel, and he's laying on his side for these years of punishment for Israel. And lo, there's 360 years left because they've already been punished for 70 years, right? So at 300 years left of punishment, then you get to this kind of piece. And I'm going to read here in back, in back in our chapter in verse 23. Just hold on to 360 years for now. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. 
So in Leviticus, it says you're going to get punished seven times the sin. And in Ezekiel, it says one day for each year of punishment for the thing. I know this is kind of complex. And it took me forever to put my head around this. And I was like, oh, Leviticus makes it make sense. Why multiply the number times seven? And you're going, why do that? The reason you do it is because of the verses that we've seen here in Leviticus, verses 18 and verses 21, and then in verse 24, God says three times, I'm going to multiply your sin punishment times seven if you get to stage three. Well, they get to stage three, right? Israel gets there, and that's what happens. So now we go back to our number of 360 years of punishments that are left because they didn't turn back to God long term. So 360 times seven is 2,520 lunar years. Now, if you adjust that calendar for solar years, that's 2,484 years. And now the number is like, where is Dickers going with this? But it's not just me. I looked all this up. This is a very common understanding of messianic prophecy. So in 536 BC, when they returned from Babylon, Ezra and Nehemiah both kind of documented that if you take that year as a starting point, because they just got out of Babylon, and then you start tallying up 2,484 years past that date, you land on the year 1948. Do you know what happened in 1948? You had the United Nations pass an accord because the British rule of Palestine just ran out. And they decided at the end of British rule in Palestine, they were going to hand that territory over to a new Israeli state. They literally were given their country back to the year that the Bible says they would, if you understand these numbers. And Ezekiel had to lay on his side for 390 days just to make this prophecy. Never desire to be a prophet of God. <laughs> Any church that makes prophets something to be proud of hasn't read the Old Testament. Like... No, do you know what prophets have to do? Like, this is horrible. So Israel, in May 14th, 1948, Israel declares an independent state, and it comes to an end. 11 minutes after they declared it, the first nation to officially recognize Israel as a state was the United States of America. So for both Israel and the United States, 1948 marks the beginning of the most prosperous era of any country on earth at any time put together. The amount of accumulated wealth in Israel in the United States of America from 1948 to now has out-accumulated any other nation in the history of the world by far. It's an exponential growth chart, and most of that growth chart is the United States and Israel. So, in fact, if you even want to look at it in different ways, from 1800 to 1900, the United States basically doubled in total material gains in wealth. From 1900 to 1950, it doubled again. From 1950 to 2000, it quadrupled. So there's no reason for the quadrupling other than God is supernaturally blessing a group of people. Now, it is extremely ethnocentric to say that God blesses the United States of America. I get that. It's completely stunning what he's done in Israel. He's turned what used to be a wasted desert land into a land that outproduces the food it needs for its people with an almost entirely immigrated group of people in the last 50 years. They export food of all sorts and sizes. They export almost every kind and class of food out of a country that used to produce nothing. They've done amazing things, but I'll get into that in a sec. Let me keep reading these curses and we'll come back to like what's happened in Israel since God has given them their land back. Verse 25 in Leviticus, I'll bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. <laughs> it's God's vengeance because you made a covenant with God. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And when I have cut off your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake bread in one oven and they shall bring back your bread by weight and you shall not eat and not be satisfied. So in, in stage four, there's going to be actual bugs and they're going to eat and kill people. This is God's sword. I don't think we've seen those bugs yet. Locusts, maybe, but they don't eat and kill people. They eat and kill crops. 
So, and then you get the question of why would women bake bread in the same oven? What women do that? And this seems to be an odd thing. And what, do, what does it mean to carry bread by weight? And what does that look like? We'll come back to it. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Ew. And I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. Sweet aromas were mentioned at the very beginning of Leviticus as what it smells like when they do the sacrifices, that God would see them as a sweet aroma to him because they're sacrificing their life for God. But in pride, if they don't want to do that sort of thing, God will not smell those sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will make such a mess of you that your enemies will know there is a God in heaven because it will be a supernatural kind of thing. They shall be astonished at it in the same way that the Sheba was astonished at the blessings of Solomon. So in stage five, verses 29 through 33, they lose control of their country. They lose residency. They're still God's people. Notice the language here isn't that he's abandoned them, but they won't have a, a political nation left. He blesses them as being his people through the whole thing, verse 12. But the opposite here isn't true. The curses is also that they're still his people. He'll discipline them because they're his people. And sadly, this all comes to be that Israel goes through all of this. It's about as bad as they get. The baby eating, 2 Kings 6.28, if you want to put a cross-reference. And the king said to her, what ails you? And she answered, the, the, the woman said to me, give me your son that we can eat him today and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and we ate him. And I said to her until the next day, give, give me your son. And then she ran off and she's hit her son. Okay. So these are two moms that make a covenant to do this eating of kids because it's that bad in Second King. Lamentations 4.10 is another reference. Israel has gone through people periods where there's so little food, they eat their own kids. You should know that this is not over though because you get this idea of doing it. Bread by weight means you're gonna, bread becomes so valuable that you cut it up and you sell it based on weight. So fluffing up the bread and making it taller doesn't make it more valuable because what's valuable is the actual bread of it. And when they talk about bread in that sense, you, you kind of wonder what's going on. Not cooking in your own oven means you're going over to other people's houses because they've lost control of their property, right? They don't have ovens left to cook in that are safe. So they're cooking bread in the same oven because you've got multiple families pooling together to get their own food. These curses didn't stop after Jesus. So it's interesting to see people that think that the, the new covenant with Jesus means Israel's not God's people anymore. Israel still gets cursed in these horrible ways. In Josephus, uh, Josephus wrote the book Wars. And in book six, chapter three, verse four, he talks about the siege of Rome or section four. He talks about the siege of Rome. And listen to what Josephus writes about the siege of Rome. There's just a little story in here of what's going on. The Romans, when they destroy Jerusalem, they siege it first. And when they take it over, they rip every block of the city down, except for the Roman citadel or the Roman uh, camp that was off to the side, which people believe today is the Temple Mount, right? But the rest of Jerusalem is ripped apart. Here's Josephus. It has now become impossible for her, this woman, any way to find any food. While the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow, when her passion was fired to a degree beyond the famine itself, nor did she consult with anything but with her passion and the necessities she was in, then she attempted a most unnatural thing. When the ancients write in their book, a most unnatural thing, it's really nasty. So cover your ears. She snatched up her son, which was a child sucking at her breast, and she said, O thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve you? In this war, this famine, this sedition, why should I keep you alive in the middle of this Roman siege? What is life worth to you? And as to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. Even if we make it through this, we're going to be slaves. 
and Romans didn't do good slavery. This wasn't like, this is the kind of slavery that we abhor. It's the nasty slavery by the time you hit Rome. This famine will destroy us even before the slavery comes. Yet are these seditious rogues more terrible than the other? Come on and be my food. And be thou a fury to these seditious varlets. <laughs> and by, okay, isn't that just great writing? Uh, and by word and to the world, which is all that now is wait, wanting to complete to the calamity of us Jews. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son and roasted him and ate one half of him. And the other half kept she kept concealed. And the story goes on. She hides the baby and then the Roman soldiers come around to her house and they smell the barbecue. And they say, where's the food? And she says, here, I saved you half of it. And she feeds the Roman soldiers a baby. And the Roman soldiers are like, that is not natural. Like, that's a barbecued child. And then sh they leave and then she eats the other half too because it's so repulsive that even the Romans won't do it. The Jewish people have been through hard times, supernaturally hard times, and they are a stiff-necked people, and they don't bend. And because of that, God breaks the power of their rulership and breaks their pride. And he, and he does it after Jesus too, which implies that Israel is still God's nation. When the prophecy comes true in 1948, Israel is still God's nation. He's made a covenant with them, not with the United States of America, not with Christians. We're grafted into the, the kingdom. But God originally makes this covenant in Leviticus with the Israelites. And those prophecies have kept coming true even after Christ. So the astonishment of the Romans is the opposite of the astonishment of Queen of Sheba. Under Solomon, they are so blessed she knows there's a God. And under the Romans, they are so cursed, they know there must be a God. Because these people are God's people, and he will discipline them. It's an interesting covenant. And by the way, the Roman Empire eventually becomes Christian. They eventually see what's going on here, and the Christians carry that blessing forward, and the Romans eventually convert to a Jewish religion, essentially. This is an interesting covenant that God makes. It's eternal salvation, eternal sovereignty, and there is it is not a frivolous thing. It's a big deal that God's making this covenant with his people. God never will forsake them, but he will test them, he will discipline them, and he will curse them. So if God's a fire, like any fire, God can burn things up and God can bake things perfectly. He can make beautiful pottery or he can make charcoal. Either one shows the fire of God. Make sense? Verse 33, it gets worse. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. In other words, they won't have a city. And that really doesn't happen until after Jesus, until the diaspora, when the Romans destroy Jerusalem. Then by the sword, the Jews are literally scattered all over the place, mostly into East Europe and Western Europe and across the Mediterranean. So Roman, the Roman Empire splits them. This comes true after Jesus, not before Jesus. Verse 34, then the land shall en enjoy its Sabbaths. My land will get its Sabbaths <laughs> without you. As long as it lies desolate, you are in your enemy's hands. And then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as the light lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. God keeps the promise. They skip 70 Sabbaths, they go off to Babylon. They come back, they skip more. God multiplies it times seven. They're getting their land back in 1948. And they're not keeping their Sabbaths. They don't take every seven years off in Israel, even today. It's a secular Israel. What's going to happen next? And you wonder if we'll be if it'll be in our lifetimes that we get to see that. And for those of you who are left, I will send a faintness into your heart and into the lands of your enemies, and the sound of a shaken leaf shall cause you to flee. And they shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if it were before a sword when no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left, 
shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands and in your father's iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. This idea of wasting away, and I don't know if this is, has to do with World War II, but it's hard to think of them perishing at the hands of another nation and wasting away and not think of the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. It's really hard to not make that connection. But the Bible doesn't say that's what this is, right? So I don't want to say that's the Bible saying that or anything like that, but it's hard to not consider that when you read through this. Um, and the Germans literally let them waste away in these camps. It was horrendous treatment. And the treatment they got was because they were Jewish. It wasn't because they were bad people or criminals. It was because of their status as Jews, as an ancient people that followed God. That's why the German people attacked them. There were other people in the camps there for other reasons, but with the Jews, it was just because of them being Jews, right? So in the same way that they're blessed just because they're Jews, they get cursed. And those hardships still exist. In New York this last week, there was more anti-Jewish stuff that happened to the point where the prime minister of, of Israel announced that any New York Jews were welcome to come back to Israel, right? If you're scared where you're at and you're fleeing because your tabernacle just got burnt up, come back to Jerusalem. And they're inviting Jews to come back to Israel from all over the world right now even from the United States, where you, you would think they would be safe. So God is great and capable of mercy. He gives these people an out, and why they still exist on the planet is a testimony to God. The land shall be left empty by them, verse 43, and will enjoy its Sabbaths, and while it lies desolate without them, they will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. There's the mercy. I sh nor shall I abhor them. It's impossible for God to hate the Israelites and utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God. I'm still their God. And this is how a father feels when their daughter or son goes prodigal. I can't hate my kid no matter what mistakes they're making, no matter how much they're suffering, no matter how much they're outside of my protection and my hand of safety and peace and provision, my heart breaks for them because I'm still their dad, right? I'm still the Lord, their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. The, and, and I am the Lord is basically that I am statement because I am. It's the nature of God to be good and forgiving. And that mercy goes out regardless of their sin because God's character never changes even though humans do. One question is, how does this, does this apply to us? There's no accident that this is in the word of God. So in your Bibles, if you want to jot down a few extra verses, let's track how these pro promises, each one follows to the follower translates to followers of Jesus. So if we're, as Gentiles, if we're grafted into the kingdom of God, then these blessings and curses may still go. Verse 41 says, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember, right? So just this idea of, um, of how they, uh, God will follow this. If God still blesses and God still curses because his nature hasn't changed, if God still has mercy, then for Christians, God will still remember Jesus. And he'll still remember that Jesus died for us, even in our sin. Um, God remembers the promise that Christ made to the world when he's looking at our lives 2,000 years later, because God will remember. God's character doesn't change. In Hebrews 12, they talk about this. And they talk about how God still disciplines his children. So even as believers today, the fact that God will discipline us, I hope we don't wither away in some foreign country um, hopefully we change and convert in stage one or stage two, but we do get chastened. Hebrews 12, verse seven, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with, your, as with sons. For what son is he whom his father does not chasten? But if you are without chastisement, where all are partakers, then you're bastards. You're not sons. <laughs> Paul's so blunt. Um, if Paul's the writer of Hebrews. Furthermore, we have our, had our fathers of our flesh which corrected us and, gave, and we gave them reverence. Shouldn't we much rather be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? So if we honor our parents, why wouldn't we honor the God in heaven? 
God still heals and brings peace. Hebrews 12, 13, 14. Make straight paths for your feet so that which is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people in holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We walk with God. We pursue God. It's been his promise since the beginning and God seeks over the whole earth for people that want to follow his commands. And as Solomon said, you might find one in a thousand people that are interested in those things. So, And that's where we're really glad to have Rebecca with us. We get to meet someone from far away. These people that want to sit and read the word and hear God's commands, and then hopefully we've become doers of that word too. We're rare people, very rare. But we don't come to that mountain so that we can be burned by the fire. We come to the mountain so that we can hear the trumpet and the voice of his words so that those who begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure. This is in Hebrews. And if so much as a beast touches the mountains, it gets stoned or shot with an arrow because God is powerful. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. God is powerful He's holy, and God was not powerful and not holy. But, in Hebrews again, you have come to the Mount of Zion, to the city of a living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better of things than that of Abel. That of Abel being the world and what's in the world, right? And Abel was blessed and Cain wasn't. You remember those that situation back in Genesis? Because Genesis? Abel gave a good sacrifice and God blessed it. But what God's offered to his people is even better than the things that Abel got. Then the last uh, verse of our chapter. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. That's a conclusion that goes all the way back to Exodus, right? This is it. This is the law. When our lives get stirred and shaken, there are things in our lives that don't get stirred and shaken. That's what Leviticus is. That's what the law of God is. Everything in our life can change and be turned around and turned upside down, but this stuff never changes. Our cultures can change. The countries that we live in can change. Nations can rise and fall. But this law of God stays persistent through all of human history. And any country that tries to follow it and bless Israel gets blessed. And historically, that's the case. Nations that curse Israel tend to struggle and have turmoil and war and chaos. And it's always been the case, except for when there was no nation of Israel, right? God is not moved and he's not shaken and the same spirit that was in Paul is in you. So when we think little of ourselves as ministers of the gospel because we are not powerful and we are terrified like Moses was, the law of God and the word of God in our hearts gives us a rock that we can stand on that never moves. So we might feel weak, but we are not broken. We might feel persecuted, but never abandoned because even when we're being disciplined, God is still with us. So we can be bent and not broken because what's in us as humans is totally destroyable. But what's in us through God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ is never broken or moved. Even when God's people are wasting away, he is still their father, which is why Christians can sit in jail cells and die of hunger and still love their Lord. Because what our body is all about is not what we are all about anymore. We are not of this world. We're of another world. That's what we live for. And if you read, as we've gone through the book of Leviticus, this is how to worship God. Give him his sacrifice. Give him your life. Celebrate his feasts on the other side. Have joy and fellowship with other believers and live life in peace and grace. And do these things. And in the middle is this life of holiness and a priesthood of holiness. And we live and do the things we're supposed to do, not in defiance of those things, but loving those things, knowing they lead to what God has. And in the middle of it all in the book of Leviticus is this atonement principle. No matter what you do or how you do it, if you come to God in humility and, and, and repentance, he forgives and you're covered and atoned for. 
That's the blessing of God. You do these things, he'll walk with you. He'll abide with you. He might give you lots and lots of population growth if you're a nation, right? He'll give you safety and he'll give you peace even when the rest of the world is not ready to give that to you. That's why Paul was in jail and he said, I'm good, don't worry about me. Don't let your hearts be troubled when I'm sitting in this Roman jail cell because I'm good. God's with me like he's never been with me before. So the circumstances don't equal the spiritual existence. Walk with God, you go to heaven. Don't walk with God, you go to hell. Easy theme. Kids can figure this out. So let's pray. Dear Lord, help our hearts to be like a child, to understand the simplicity of the gospel at every stage. Lord, this chapter is really easy. If we follow you, we're, we, we can expect that you will love us like a father and bless us in, in our walk with you spiritually, not in material ways that a, a child would want, Lord, but in the spiritual ways that a mature believer would want. Lord, you bless us with peace, with safety, with our daily bread, food on our table. Lord, you bless us with family and you bless us with friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, if we follow you as a body, we can expect our churches to grow, uh, that they will grow in number, Lord, that your nation will continue to expand. Uh, Lord, we want you to abide with us, make your tent here, uh, make your home in our heart, Lord, and live with us. Lord, don't be angered at us and don't be annoyed by us. Let your heart not abhor us, uh, but forgive us our sins. Lord, I, I ask you to just be with us in that way and walk with us. Lord, joke with us on the road and give us thoughts that bring joy to our heart. Help us to see through your eyes and Lord, help us to not curse others, Lord, but love them knowing they can walk into that covenant with you too. Lord, help us to enjoy the blessings of our covenant with you and not the curses. And when we are cursed, Lord, help us to repent quickly, um, to know that you will discipline your children in order to see us grow up. So help us to grow up quickly and be mature in our walks with you and to be um, excited about what you have to offer in our lives. Thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.